Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on yet another overcast day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Steve Hill, Managing Director of Hemswell Cold Store, an independent frozen food storage facility in Lincolnshire. Steve, hello. Good afternoon, Martin. Good afternoon. Thank you for coming on the program today. Now, normally we'd go straight over to the subject of leadership, uh, but in this case, we should address the ongoing COVID outbreak. How has this affected your business? It's been extremely trying times. Uh, I'm I'm sure you can appreciate that as a frozen food uh, warehouse, we've we've had to remain open. Um, It's been important that the... uh, that the country could access uh, food supplies, mm-hmm. uh, but it's been very difficult. Um, it's it's been a balancing act between our customers that have seen uh, huge surges in demand for their products, and then we've had other customers who have seen literally their uh, their, their business because they supply catering uh, catering establishments disappear overnight. And do you believe that this is going to have a long-term effect on your business, or is this just something that you're going to have to get over in the short term? Um, initially, it was very difficult to to assess that uh, and and how it would affect our different customers over uh, over time. But very much what we're finding is that initially there was a, a quite a dramatic uh, drop in turnover with some customers and then when others, as I say, we, we saw the increase. But now uh, there seems to be a leveling of the playing field and the uh, catering suppliers, uh, they're seeing their business slowly return and the companies that were maybe seeing a boom in turnover, they're seeing their uh, turnover now start to uh, recede a little. So we've, 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 we've probably... Uh, our turnover isn't far from where we were pre-lockdown. Mm-hmm. We should move on to the subject of leadership. After all, that's why you're here. Um, I always like to start this part of the conversation off by asking the same question. What does the word leader mean to you? I think it means in an example. I think it means setting an example to... Um, your employees. I think it means setting an example to uh, your customers and your suppliers. Um, you've got to be prepared to um, make sure that your customers understand that you understand their problems, whether it's that they require more than they would normally uh, want on a weekly basis or if it's less, and that you're going to uh, support them through that. I think it's important to work with your suppliers uh, to make sure that you know they don't feel that uh, they've been left out in the cold. Um, but most most important of all, we have employees who I, I suppose had the full range of emotions at the beginning of, of, of coronavirus, um, and a lot of them were fearful. Uh, and I think if at that moment in time, as the leader, as such, of this business, 
I maybe seen to protect myself uh, and stepped back, then that would have been poor leadership. So I've, I've, I've literally, um, from the date of lockdown, there may be five, six days that I haven't been in this business in its entirety, including weekends. Um, and, 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 and therefore, you set the example. If I'm here and I'm, I'm doing it, then I'm not going to put myself in harm's way. Um, and we've, we've, we've almost managed to create a, a siege mentality in the end. It's been, it's been us versus coronavirus. And how do we continue to uh, service all our customers? And how would you describe your leadership on a day-to-day scale? Um, on a day-to-day scale, I, I just try to be um, positive about the business. Um, but where you need to be, you need to be firm. Uh, you know, we can't have too many people trying to uh, decide which direction the business goes in. Uh, it's my business. Um, if we if we if we go in the right direction, that's 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 good for uh, the business. If we go in the wrong direction, obviously that's poor for the business. Over over a period of time, most of my employees here have worked for me for a long time quite a number of years and therefore you like to think that they stay because they work on the basis that um, you get the big decisions right. Not always, but you get the big decisions right. And uh, and that's what it's about. It's about making, you know, on a day-to-day basis, the big decisions about what we're doing that day, what we're doing next week, what we're doing next year, and trying to guide the business at all times. Now, of course, leadership does come under challenge uh, when conflict arises. Do you have a specific method of how to handle it? Yeah, I think you handle it um, head on. Uh, You have to listen, understand what's caused the conflict. Um, Sometimes you make compromise. Um, Other times you have to stand firm and say, well, you know, these are my decisions. I believe they're the right ones for the business, and that's therefore um, the road that we're going to go down. This, these are the steps that we're going to take. Uh, I, I think it's um, ultimately it's what I'm paid for to make those decisions and 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 lead the business. Where would you say that you uh, came to your leadership style? Would you say that you had a role model who shaped you in this way, or have you been shaped more by circumstance? I think you get shaped by circumstance, uh, like anyone who's been in business a, a, a number of years, and, and, and I have, I've, I've had my own business for uh, going on 25 years. You have good experiences, you have bad experiences, things that would have uh, shaken me uh, maybe 15, 20 years ago. I can take them in my stride now. Um, but if you look for a specific role mo- model, although he's not been in business, I'd step back to my father because he taught me some very... He, he taught me very good things when I was younger mm. and it was to be honest, uh, to be brave with your decisions and um, understand that when you've made your bed, you lie in it and, uh, and, and you get on with it. He, he had the saying that, you know, we are where we are and that's very true and at all times... That is exactly how I look at things. We are where we are. We can't go backwards. 
we can only go forward from here. Uh, and therefore, in that way, um, he uh, he taught me an awful lot. Now, of course, uh, when we talk about leadership, we often think of leaders on a grand scale, uh, giving us advice or reading or learning from them. But if you had the opportunity to speak to yourself a decade ago, what advice would you give yourself? If I had a chance to speak to myself, mm-hmm. oh, well, there's there's maybe one or two times when I was younger, uh, I'd have told myself to have the courage of my convictions and not let uh, others who you may think have got more experience um, sometimes lead you to make a decision that you weren't comfortable with or you didn't totally believe in because sometimes whether the decision you make is the right one or the wrong one or you could have made a better decision if you believe in the decision that you've made then uh, your conviction will often uh, get you to where you you want to be. Um, it's it's a bit like coming from A to B. There's often various ways you can do it. There's no right way. There's no wrong way. But if you get from A to B, then you've achieved the result. Um, and uh, and I think that's why I would say to myself, I, I just just have especially when you're you're younger and you're starting out, just have that little bit more faith in yourself. Um, and and at least if you uh, if you do get something wrong, you've only got one person to blame, and that is yourself. Now, unfortunately, our time together has drawn to a close. But before I let you go, what does the next 12 months have in store for Hemswell Cold Store? I think the next 12 months will be a period of consolidation. Um, not looking to uh, expand the business. Uh, what I want to do is I want to make sure that we fully recover and our customers and our suppliers and my employees fully recover from the shock that everybody's had. Um, and uh, in 12 months' time, we look back on it and we say, well, it's just a, it's just an experience. We've learned from it. And the business uh, may not be stronger uh, from the traditional point of view of profitability and turnover, but maybe it's tougher, mentally stronger, than the people working for it are mentally stronger. Well, let's hope uh, that happens across uh, British industry in the coming weeks and months. Let's hope so, yeah. Uh, I do hope that we can speak again sometime soon, but unfortunately for now, uh, Steve, uh, we have reached the end of our time. So, Steve, thank you. Thank you very much. That was Steve Hill, Managing Director of Hemswell Cold Store. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know 
Have you finally forgiven Marcus Dressed Gothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dressed Gothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... You know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then, you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to... See your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance. Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. Of and then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. um, To have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 
Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years I went god Charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising I haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and I went well join the club Quite. you know and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it, it's just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was Number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London, and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, though, because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as done. a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know. You see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that you know that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just 
clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th- th- suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, w- that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr- to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th- there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because. They, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter you know, how gregarious and, and how... Um, impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you Mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of the ecb uh you took some pretty uh major steps early on um you brought in trevor bayliss as coach was what was brought in um you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket now in the abstract what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? 
Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, 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 what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know even when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, Andrew, to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth 
before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f- focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men extraordinary so numbers yeah i mean it, in the list of top 10 cancers it's number eight rare forms right. of lung cancer number eight so it's not really rare it's probably a misnomer but it's um yeah we're really lacking in funding and understanding and then the second element and probably this is in some ways more pressing is um to help uh Cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we... I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We're, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think the, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be... Yeah, so the... I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is... Yeah. a very inclusive if you're thinking about think about a marathon but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26 sounds ideal so we've got grandparents we've got little kids we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds um we've got the red for ruth day at lords again so that was an incredible day for us it last year you could you, whether you were there or not especially if you were there i mean to say but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f- for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and and make it more of a community thing, not just the the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing uh, wearing red. So what what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot Uh, of them (laughs) wear red trousers (laughs) anyway, I think. But um, (laughs) no, absolutely. They they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in 
in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but... In two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, uh, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.